Welcome back to Trending in Education. Dan Strapper, Mike Palmer along with you. And on today's episode, we have a very special guest, Annie Duke, author of Thinking in Bets, co-founder of the Alliance of Decision Education in Philadelphia, also a retired professional poker player. Annie, thanks so much for joining us on today's show. Thanks for having me. So uh, Mike Palmer here, uh, and Annie, as I, I mentioned in the prep, uh, big fan. Uh, so it's fun uh, to, to interview someone who I spend a lot of time listening to. So I listen to you voice the audio version of Thinking in Bets. So, so again, welcome to the show. Uh, for our listeners who may not know your backstory, uh, can you provide like a, a quick summary in your own words of what kind of got you to the point of uh, writing this book and, uh, and then starting the, the, the Alliance for Decision Education? Yeah, sure. Um, so first of all, I just want to say, you know, by the way, when I was voicing that book, I had just gotten over a horrible case of laryngitis. So I, it's amazing to me that that book sounds like I'm normal in it because I was having, I was having to stop and walk out of the recording booth to cough a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and so I just remember it as this experience of me coughing the whole time, but apparently I don't actually cough on the recording. So um, yeah, so, so I have a, a kind of winding strange path um, in terms of how, how I got to, to today. Um, I started off my adult life as an academic, um, I, as an undergrad, I was a research assistant to a wonderful professor named Barbara Landau, who was uh, a professor in the, in the burgeoning field, a really kind of a new field of cognitive science, mm -hmm. uh, cognitive psychology, which was really thinking about uh, how, how are we interacting with the world, building models of the world, learning, uh, it was a melding of a lot of different dif disciplines, you know, linguistics, you know, computation, mm -hmm. um, so on and so forth. And a uh, really, really interesting time to be in psychology. So I, I was her research, research assistant. She really strongly pushed me to go study with her mentors, with her advisors at, at the University of Pennsylvania, which I did do. Mm -hmm. And I went to graduate school there for five years, um, studying with Lila and Henry Gleitman. Um, and fully intended, like to total complete intention to become a professor. And in fact, uh, at the end, I, I had all of my job talks lined up um, to go interview to become a professor. And I ended, I got sick. So, you know, luck kind of intervened in this way that at the time felt like very bad luck. Um, and I ended up in the hospital for a couple of weeks. Mm. Um, I needed to, you know, needed some time to recuperate. It was a, it was a pretty bad stomach um, ailment. So, mm -hmm. Uh, eating wasn't a pleasant experience for me at that point. And um, so I, I decided to take a year off because I, I just needed to get better. Mm -hmm. um, so I delayed all my job talks and I was going to go back out the next spring. And it was in that period where I need, just needed money, frankly. I, I wasn't in school, which meant I couldn't teach, uh, which was where a lot of my income was coming from. And also I didn't have my fellowship anymore. So I, did, I, I had a, I was studying under a national science foundation fellowship when I was at Penn and obviously I didn't have that anymore. And so I needed money, but I was also, I didn't feel well every single day. So, you know, it wasn't like I was going to go start like a career and I certainly wasn't going to go do something that was nine to five because I was going to be calling in sick a lot. So my brother actually um, suggested that I play poker, 
And your, which, your brother, your brother is Howard Letterer. For those of us who got into uh, like World Series of Poker back in the nineties, uh, yeah, he 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 was legendary as a, a poker professional while you were pursuing your uh, academic career, right? Yeah. So he he actually started playing poker before I was done with high school. Mm-hmm. So he started playing in the early eighties. Mm-hmm. So. At the time that all of this is happening to me, it's like 1994. Mm-hmm. So he's already been playing for a very, very long time. Right. Um, so I'm like familiar with the game, but also for context for people, um, uh, now poker is very ubiquitous. It's like on television, you can watch it all the time. Uh, there's, there's internet poker, like you can play online. None right. of that existed back then. So it wasn't like, um, you know, nowadays, I think that th- there are kids who are actually like, oh, I could be a poker player when I grow up, you know, right. for me, like m- my understanding of poker was uh, s- sort of from the odd couple, because sure. they would sometimes have a Wednesday night poker game on the odd couple. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then also, uh, my dad had like, you know, those plastic chips, and we would sometimes play like, you know, pass the trash or baseball or something. Yeah. I mean, that, yeah, yeah. Like there, there was no like, oh, yes, this is something that you could do at the living. Sure. Um, but because my brother had had ended up doing this really, really through an entree from chess, he was he was a really avid and accomplished chess player and started playing poker. Mm-hmm. Um, he had already been doing it forever. So um, so he said to me, hey, you know, seems like maybe that's something that you could do because, you know, it's not like you have to call in sick to work. You like show up when you show up. Right. Um, so that was when I started playing poker. Um, had a lot of success really early on with it and and really loved it and actually ended up not going out to become a professor um, and just started pursuing poker. Um, so about eight years, yeah, eight years into my poker career, having done all, you know, my PhD work right. at Penn, um, about eight years in, in 2000, I think it was 2002, I got asked by a guy named Roger Lowe, who had a hedge fund, um, if I would come and speak to his options traders about how poker might inform decisions about risk. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was a really pivotal moment in my life because uh, obviously the things that I've been studying as a cognitive scientist were certainly informing the way that I was thinking about poker, for sure. I wasn't necessarily thinking about that in like a super explicit way Mm -hmm. and I wasn't thinking also in an explicit way about how poker might inform what I had been thinking about as a cognitive psychologist and what I had been specifically really thinking about was learning Mm -hmm. um, and studying how 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 human beings learn so when he asked me when Roger Lowe asked me to come and give this talk it's this moment where I really start to think explicitly about the way that the, the kind of real time high stakes decision-making problem that poker presents speaks to and interacts with the kinds of things that I was studying as a cognitive psychologist. Mm -hmm. I get up to give a talk to that group of options traders. It's like this aha moment of remembering what I loved so much about academics. You know, I, I think that I started playing poker and I just loved the problem so much. It was, it's such an interesting and hard 
problem to try to unpack mm -hmm. that I just fell so deep into it mm -hmm. that in some ways I sort of forgot what it was that I love so much about academics. And when I got up and gave that talk, I remembered what I loved so much about graduate school. And I think that um, it was that moment of realizing like, oh, these two things actually inform each other in this really, really interesting way. Yeah. So from that one talk with Roger, he recommended me to a few people. I ended up getting other work, you know, really talking about the, the interplay between these two uh, worlds. Mm -hmm. And by 2006, six a friend of mine asked me um if i wanted to join the board of a nonprofit that was called the decision education foundation mm -hmm. and this was run by a group of people um really kind of out of stanford and ron howard who ha was really the father of decision analysis and not 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 happy days, Ron Howard. Not right? happy days, Ron okay. Howard. This is yeah. a professor at Stanford who was really the father of decision analysis. Yep. Um, and they 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 were a group of people who had said, well, you know, we had this consulting business and we know all this academic work on how do you think about decisions, particularly how do you think about uh, decisions uh, under conditions of uncertainty? You know, this kind of probabilistic world. Yep. And we really think that this is something that should be taught to every kid, mm -hmm. like every kid in school. So uh, this friend of mine was, was um, familiar with some of the work that I had been doing, marrying the, the poker problem and, and this ac the academic stuff that, that I had been tackling as a graduate yep. student and thought that I might be a really good fit for that board. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, I, you know, we had a few conversations and I explored the, the, um, nonprofit and what they were doing and really fell in love with that mission, um, ended up joining that board. Uh, in 2012, I, I retired from poker and I also resigned from that board. Okay. Um, we were still really involved with that organization, but, uh, the reason why I resigned from that board is because, uh, me and actually the person who had originally invited me to, to join, um, the board were both really, really focused and hungry for scale. Yep. Um, really felt like it wasn't enough to get decision education to thousands of kids that, yep. that we really wanted to get it to millions of kids. And so we ended up, uh, leaving that organization and, uh, co-founding, uh, the Alliance for Decision Education. Yep. Um, so the idea was, so we, we founded it in 2014 and the idea was we're going to see if we can really create programs that do actually move the needle. Hmm. And we thought if we do that and we can really show really good evaluation that we could scale. Mm -hmm. That was kind of the idea. Yep, yep. So, so we did that. We, we created some programs. They really did move the needle. They, they increased um, test scores. And we weren't directly teaching math or English or anything, but uh, we were teaching you know, this, the, these decision skills. Yep. But they increased test scores about 10 to 15% in subjects that weren't what we were teaching. And they reduced um, uh, disciplinary actions by 5%. So we thought, mm -hmm. this is great. We're going to go out and, 
obviously now everybody will want to do this and we'll reach millions of kids. Um, and it turns out it just kind of doesn't work that way in education. It's very, very hard um, to get new um, curricula into schools. Yeah. It's hard to get people to commit to the PD. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a lot of, you know, questions about, well, what are we going to, you know, if we teach this, then we yeah. have to, what are we going to take away? Yeah, K-12, we talk about that a lot. K-12 especially is the hardest space to, to really innovate quickly. You know, you right, almost exactly. Anywhere else, uh, even higher ed, it's easier to, to get there. And then if you get at like, you know, more like informal lifelong learning, that type of intervention and pre-K, uh, like those are the areas that are, probably mo- there's the most ability to be experimental uh, there. Uh, so yeah. so that, that's interesting. And, you know, it does sound like that that's maybe validated a bit by, by some of your experiences. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I mean, and by the way, I have an answer to what should you take away. It's like trigonometry. Right. Right. Like, yeah, trigonometry is, you know, by the way, the history of trigonometry is like it was really hard. So it was a way to test for grit, basically. Right. And, it, and it turns out, there's no uh, Native American woman named Sokotoa, which totally blew my mind. What? Really? (laughs) How strange. Really? Okay, there you go. So, yeah, so, like, just get, you know, trigonometry. Like, look, the fact is that kids are at some point getting statistics and probability, Mm -hmm. but it's generally an elective. Yep. You know, at some point are you getting a class in decision-making in college as an elective? Like, mm-hmm. if you want to be a structural engineer, take trigonometry, right? Right. And I would, I personally would replace that with statistics and probability, but you know, that's my own thing. Right. It's, it's, it's hard to turn that ship around. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. 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 So, um, so in the meantime, well, so we found this, we, we found that we co-found the organization at the time it's called how I decide. Mm. Um, we create these programs. These programs seem to do really well. Then we run up against a brick wall. You know, we've reached 60,000 kids. I, look, I mean, proud of that, but it's right, but it's not 60 million, right, right. So, which is what we care about. That's why, the, you know, that's, we still support the Decision Education Foundation, actually, by the way, we partner with them because yep. they're doing great work, but they were much more kind of in the 60,000 range. And we, sure. we were like, you know, we want to be in the 60 million range. Right. Um, so we love what you do. We just want to scale it, right? Mm-hmm. So that was the idea. So, um, so while, while that's going on, I write this book, mm-hmm. Thinking and Bats, um, which is really what had become kind of this life's work of, of how, are, how is poker informing um, decision-making in general and how right. is it uh, really getting you to think about the, the, acad- the amazing academic work that's been being done in judgment and decision-making and cognitive yeah. science. So well, I write that the- even when you were talking about, uh, you know, von, von Neumann and like the history of game theory and how that sort of informed, like how it is interesting to hear you talk about how you connected poker to your academic career. Uh, that's got to be, you know, von Neumann is almost like, you know, the intersection of your, your Venn diagrams there too. Because like, I found that part really interesting too, as you were talking about academics who gravitated to poker, uh, mm-hmm. you know, like they're, they're it is in some ways a, a poker table is a beautiful um, behavioral economics lab. And, you know, it seems like that mindset is part of what allowed you to succeed as a poker player and then to sort of full circle, start connecting back the academics to the poker. Um, 
I, it's, it's a wonderful read, uh, and I, I would recommend it to our listeners. It's interesting to think about it from the learning perspective. You know, like that's, that's why it's, um, it's really interesting to, to me, someone who hosts a learning and education podcast, that like that's something you're at your core, that's something you're, you're still very passionate about. Uh, and I'd, I'd love to hear like, what, what do you see coming down, down the pike for, for you or for this? Like what, what are you experimenting with to understand how, how we can sort of scale, uh, scale the importance of, I guess, like decision science and, um, uh, you know, thinking in bets? Yeah, so, um, all right, so let me just tie up a few things. So Von Nor John Von Neumann, just for people who aren't familiar with him, a uh, very, very important person in the history of science, but somewhat lost mm -hmm. um, in terms of uh, level of fame. I mean, like he's no Einstein, mm -hmm. you know, as far as like branding is concerned, like we all know who Einstein is. So Von Neumann is actually the father of the modern computer. Mm -hmm. um, he ran the Manhattan Project and, and actually died of cancer at age 52, likely because of the atomic testing. Oh, wow. um, but while he was running the Manhattan Project, he wrote a book with Oscar Morgenstern called The Theory of Games. Hmm. Uh, and this is really creating the framework for game theory, which is um, the study of decision-making under conditions of uncertainty over time. That's a loose definition of it. Um, over time means that, uh, let's say we're in a negotiation, one would assume that I'm gonna, whatever decision I make now is gonna affect future decisions, right? Mm -hmm. So if you think I'm a tough negotiator and an easy negotiator, I can signal those things. And yep. um, so that's the time uh, part of it. Uh, but the uncertainty part of it is the part that I really grab onto. Um, and he talks about two sources of uncertainty. One is hidden information um, and one is luck. Mm. Now, you'll notice that those two things have a very strong influence on the game of poker. Your cards are face down and there's lots of luck. Can't mm. control the cards. Um, and in fact, uh, von Neumann based uh, game theory, that framework that he created in that, that book on a stripped down version of poker. Mm -hmm. And he was asked by a colleague of his named Jacob Bernowski, you know, hey, I, I read this book. It's pretty interesting. How come you didn't base it on chess? Hmm. And von Neumann said, well, because chess isn't actually a game. Poker is a game. Hmm. And what he meant by that is that chess is missing that really strong element of luck um, in the sense that, you know, nobody rolls the dice and it's a seven and you get an extra queen or something, you know, or right. you lose your bishop. Um, it's an interesting variant though. So we may want to come back to that. Yeah. We should that actually, yeah. that would be, that would be very interesting if you added a luck element to chess. Yeah. Um, and, and then, uh, obviously the hidden information, I, I can see your whole position. So mm -hmm. there, there isn't that hidden information. So, so this makes chess really different than poker or actually most decisions in life in the sense that if we play a game of chess and all that, uh, anybody knows is that I lost. So mm -hmm. nobody's seen the game. They haven't actually seen the moves. They just know that I lost. They can derive from that, that I must've made worse decisions than you did. Right. Uh, but if all they know is that we played poker for that same amount of time, say an hour, and they know that I lost, but they don't know any of the decisions that I made right. during the game, you can't actually say that I made the worse decisions than you. Why? Because I could have lost due to luck, for example. Right. right? So, so von Neumann really, really understood why poker is different and why poker creates this really great framework 
for thinking about human decision-making. Now, when I went into poker, I was unaware of all of this. Right. So I didn't know that like I, as a cognitive scientist, mm. you know, where I'm really thinking about learning and decision-making this attraction that I had to poker actually had deep roots. I had no idea. That was something, a happy thing that I found out later. Yeah. Um, so, so what we're really trying to do is, is, is to think about, there's so much work. And as you said, like poker is such a great laboratory for understanding this. There's so much work on where we go wrong in our decision-making. Mm-hmm. You know, by confirmation bias, yes. availability bias, status quo bias. The hindsight you know. one is great because uh, yes. I was thinking even 2020s next year, hindsight is 2020, you know, so yeah. I, thought, I thought that was a good one. That's so great, yes. Hindsight bias, um, resulting, which is uh, yes. very similar to hindsight bias. So resulting is actually treating things like their chess. Like uh, if the ball's intercepted, it must have been a bad play. Right, right. Right. Which if also, the ball's I mean, caught, it again, must like have been we're, a great we're play. Kind of, this is the free form uh, segment of the whole podcast is really free form. So yeah. don't worry about it. But, uh, but I love the way when you talk about uh, the Super Bowl, the Seahawks versus the, the Patriots and, uh, you know, Pete Carroll's decision to – throw the ball on second down on the goal line. Um, wonderful for those of us who are sports fans, game theorists, uh, you know, people who understand, uh, you know, strategy and tactics under time pressure. Um, that was a really powerful um, kind of like root story that you, you sort of weave throughout uh, the narrative of the book. Um, that, that's a great example of resulting, right? Like where we okay. say, because, uh, you know, he was intercepted, Pete Carroll made the worst decision in Super Bowl history uh, when your point would be more that's looking at the outcome. That's, that's not necessarily understanding the process that went into making that decision. And just because an unlikely outcome happened uh, doesn't necessarily mean that you made the wrong decision uh, heading in. And, uh, and really your book, is filled with stories like that. So like it is, it's great for those of us who like to be entertaining at uh, cocktail parties. Uh, so, uh, so I thought <laughs> well, that- I'm glad that it helps with that because I have a great fear of cocktail parties and ah. needing some small talk. So yeah. I'm glad that I could help anybody with that anxiety. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, I, I think that with the Pete Carroll decision, uh, it's really easy to see resulting if you do this thought experiment, right? So we know that the ball got intercepted and we know what the headlines look like. I mean, mm-hmm. as some of the, there was a headline that actually called them an idiot. Mm-hmm. which I think is astonishing. Like it's Pete Carroll. Come on, right, really? Right. Um, uh, so, so we know what that looks like when the ball's intercepted. Now, if we do the thought experiment, just take a moment and imagine that the Seahawks are on the one yard line and Pete Carroll does this super unusual thing and calls for the ball to be passed as opposed to, you know, handed off to Marshawn Lynch. So he calls for a pass and the ball's caught for the game winning touchdown. Right. Like, are there any headlines the next day calling him an idiot? No, he's a nope. genius. Yep. He's a genius, right. He's the greatest coach of, you know, he out Belichick, Belichick, so on yeah. and so forth. Yeah. So, so we know that there's a problem there because um, whenever there's a, a strong influence of, you know, luck and hidden information, what it means is that one Uh, time isn't enough to know whether that's a good decision or not. You'd have to see that decision played out multiple times before you could know anything from the outcome. Mm -hmm. And instead what we need to understand are things like, like 
the simplest thing that you'd like to understand there is what percentage of the time mm-hmm. is a ball going to get intercepted in that in that particular situation right. you know in a short yardage pass to that part of the end zone right and it's less than two percent of the time and the minute that you understand that the minute that you say wait a minute hold on this is probabilistic right, right. like right I, I need to think about what the probabilities are here and you ask yourself that particular question you realize hold on a second that's so low right that i now i should really think about whether whether that was a bad decision or not but people don't really think that way and i think that that's that's really what we're trying to get at with the alliance for decision education yeah. is what we realized is that look we created these programs we improved outcomes it didn't matter we couldn't get it to move mm-hmm. if we want to reach, million, reach millions of people we have to create a movement. We have to be field catalyzers. Right, right. We have to say, there's all these adults who are reading Kahneman, right? Who are reading Michael Malbison, mm-hmm. who are reading Phil Tetlock. Yep. Who are you know so on so I mean the Maria Konnikova. Yep. Um, you know uh, the Heath brothers. You know so on so I mean there there are so many amazing books in this space. You know, there's Julia Galef, who has this amazing podcast on rationality. There's Shane Parrish and mm-hmm. Farnham Street and that site that he's running. That's, and adults are really thinking this is something, you know, there's a certain self-selecting group of adults who are saying, this is something that I really need that's going to improve my life. Right. But it hasn't, you know, it hasn't trickled down yep. uh, to K through 12. Right. I mean, it's hardly trickled down to college, let's be honest. Yeah. But well, it's Because certainly... so, those educational, they're so institutionalized that it's tough to, you know, we, we also talk a lot about data science, which is another field that's kind of emerged in the last, say, five, 10 years. Um, the competencies you need to be a great data scientist are not really built into K-12. No. And then higher ed is kind of trying to play catch up a little bit, but looking for partners there. And it seems like, you know, the, the way you're talking about, um, it's, it's kind of like decision science, right? Or mm-hmm. like, I, I don't know, like, depending on how you want to talk about uh, this body of work, it's a lot of behavioral economics, cognitive psychology. It, it does feel like it's an intellectual movement that's happening. Uh, you know, we cover a lot of these topics on the show. But like, what's funny is just the breakthrough doesn't seem to be as, as fast, maybe as a lot of us uh, would hope it is particularly because we're in this golden age of self-improvement, you know, like mindfulness and, you know, nutrition and making good health decisions and uh, just making good decisions in general. Um, It seems like such a fundamental uh, and like broadly, uh, broadly applicable set of competencies that it's almost like it's too profoundly different from the historical approach you know, like, it's almost like this would be a very, you know, the three R's, it would be like the D <laughs> decision making or like, yeah. I don't know, somehow, you, like, it's, it's very, it's almost so fundamental that I think it's difficult for people who are in the more institutional parts of learning and education to even think about how do you start, you know? Well, I, well, I also think, well, I mean, I also think the incentives are misaligned, but, mm. you know, by the way, I mean, not just data science, how about just coding? Right. You know, we're not teaching why isn't, why isn't a first grader starting to code? Right. Right. I mean, it, it's all this stuff that, that 
businesses understand these are important skills that we want to hire to. I mean, I don't think any business is hiring to the grade that you got in trigonometry or calculus. Right. Right. Like I don't, I mean, unless they're specifically uh, structural engineers, then I, right. I would like you to know a lot of trigonometry then, but I assume, I assume, I assume that you will have gotten that right. along in your, during your engineering degree, I'm hoping. Yeah. So, um, you know, so, so, and by the way, and there's, there's, there's a lot of businesses that have now created behavioral units. Yes. Like they really get it, but right. it, it's not, it's not getting down into K through 12. Yes. And I think a lot of the reason for that is because of what the incentives are in terms of uh, reimbursements mm. and how the, the, the school is evaluated, you know, these, these kinds of distortions that metrics can create, you know, yep. I, I always think about this. Um, I think about this when I was watching my kids, you know, do you remember the Wii system? Like the Wii, sure. right. Um, and they had one of the things that the Wii did was they had like a exercise thing where you could, it was trying to get kids to be more fit. Yep. So you could turn on like the hula hoop thing or like the running thing. And it was yep. trying to get you to jog in place. And obviously this comes from the idea that, you know, kids who are moving more are healthier or right. adults that are moving more are healthier, but now they've created kind of a metric for how are you going to measure things that we know are sort of outcomes of healthiness that then re right. And I would watch my kids take the um, controller and just wave it. Yeah. Right. And, and then they're scoring points for like yeah. jogging or something Gaming it. Yeah. like, yeah. right. So I feel like we've done that a lot in school, right? Mm -hmm. Is that we know like great performing schools, the kids have really good math scores, you know, mm -hmm. or the kids have really good whatever. Mm -hmm. And so now we think that we can work backwards from that. Right. And say, well, if they have these really good math scores, then it must, then it, it's a good school, but it doesn't actually work backwards. It's like, mm -hmm. it's your, your say you're, you're looking at the outcome as opposed to the inputs. Right. And now you're just measuring the outcome. So this is this is one of the things that we ran up against. We were talking to somebody who uh, uh, had under their umbrella uh, like almost fifteen thousand kids. Okay. And we were saying we you know we really want to talk to you about getting this into the classroom and um, uh, you know we were showing them like look here are these programs they do really great things. And they said, no, 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 like I, this. And they said they weren't happy about it. Right. Mm -hmm. they, they, it wasn't like, this is our, this is my philosophy of life. It was, they said, sadly, we're trying to get teachers and students to make fewer decisions, not more mm -hmm. because we need to them to be doing the same thing. Every single classroom to be doing the same thing so that when they take that standardized test, yeah. We, that this is what we know that they're going to have taught this stuff. Right. It's almost like training humans to be robots. Right. Know, like, exactly. Yeah. So they said, we don't want teachers making a whole bunch of decisions. Like we don't want them doing stuff like that's outside of the range of the things that we know that the time in the classroom needs to be taken yeah. or for them to be able to do to succeed at this test. Right. We don't want the kids to be making more decisions. Right. So, I mean, my gosh, talk about de-skilling. Right. Right? Like we're just de-skilling 
the, yeah. the kids. Not, not to mention the implications to the future of work too, like in a world where, you know, more and more automation and like novel technology is going to be introduced into uh, everyone's lives and, and new careers are going to emerge. Like you need to be ready to respond to new and surprising data quickly and with limited information. Uh, the, the way you, you talk about decision-making, it reminds me uh, a bit of uh, the Jeff Bezos uh, recommendation uh, to when you're 70% confident mm -hmm. about a decision, you should make it. Because if you wait, if the, the amount of time you waste trying to get from 70 to 90 or 100%, it's more valuable to be quick, you know, across the board with that 70% confidence interval because, uh, or just confidence level, because it, it's diminishing returns to try to get more certain and you wind yeah. up, and, and then like poker is a great example of that because, you know, you really can't like, maybe you get extended time, but it's, it's like a minute and change. Like you're, you're it, under the gun. Literally a minute and 10 seconds. Oh my God. That's yeah. the extended time. That's yeah. when someone calls a clock, you get a minute and 10 seconds. That's exactly right. And, yeah. and obviously in order to be able to live that Jeff Bezos recommendation, yeah. you know, which, which I think is such a good recommendation. It's like, if you have three options right. and you're 70% on one of the options, right. the, the, the other two options aren't competing. Right. Right. Like they're just not. And so, okay, if you go get more information, if you take more time, might you get to 74% right. on that option? Sure. But it doesn't change how it is relative to the other things that you could do. Right. Right. So it, it might feel better to you to say, Ooh, I'm more certain, mm -hmm. but you're relative, relative to the other choices. You might as well just go and, and do it. And then you get to get the information from the world and adjust accordingly. But in order mm -hmm. to do that, someone has to have taught you how to think probabilistically. Right. Someone has to have taught you that uncertainty is just the way, you know, that you have to make decisions under uncertainty that you, that you can't be sure. Yeah. They, they need to under, have taught you about the idea of diminishing returns or setting goals or right. figuring out, thinking about how things might turn out or right. expected value or, you know, any of these things, which are concepts that you can teach to a first grader. Yeah. You, you know, you have to change the language, but, but you can teach this stuff to a first grader. And these kinds of decisions, as you said, these kinds of decision skills are exactly the kind of skills that, that, that kids are going to need. Yeah. This kind of, how do you think flexibly? Mm -hmm. How do you think about, uh, you know, how do you model the world and apply those models to different situations? Yes. And I think about, you know, two, a, a few books come to mind that are kind of in this space. One is the wonderful book range mm -hmm. by David Epstein. Yes. That's um, relatively new. I was talking, that's yeah. about generalists, right? Yeah. So it's saying, you know, when you have someone who's really a, a specialist in something mm -hmm. um, that when, when you think about uh, the, you know, who's, who's thriving in the world right now, it's the generalists. Mm -hmm. And why are the generalists thriving in the world? Because they can look at any situation mm -hmm. and bring, you know, biology to finance and right. think about it through that framework. And, yep. uh, you know, they're incredibly nimble thinkers and, mm -hmm. and, you know, they don't have the rigidity and they can see out past the one thing that they're really good at. You know, uh, uh, Phil Tetlock talks about foxes and and yes. hedgehogs, right? Yes. So yes. that foxy kind of thinking, mm -hmm. you know, where you're looking at things from all sorts of different angles is, is so valuable. And then there's two other books. One is Scott Page, The Model Thinker. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Um, and the other, the, the other one that's, that's uh, just come out is called super thinking. Mm. Um, and those are both uh, what, great books that really just talk about the value of mental models and mm-hmm. how, if you have a lot of different mental models at your disposal, you can then apply those to different situations and you can see what the similarities are. I think one, one of my favorite examples from super thinking actually um, is talking about how valuable it is to understand the concept of a two flank war. Mm. So you could think about that from the specialist standpoint of like actually militarily, you know, you've got uh, Poland in between Russia and Germany, right? right. You, you have to fight on both sides um, and why that's problematic. But once you understand that as a mental model um, and super thinking talks about this so beautifully, you could think about that in terms of Clinton Mm. Ha- having to deal with um, Trump and Bernie Sanders at the same time. Interesting. Right. Yeah. So she was fighting from her left flank and, and the right flank. And so she ended up really fighting a two flank war as well. And why, and, and now you can see, Ooh, I can apply that to all sorts of different things sure. and all sorts of different situations. Yeah. Um, and I think that these are the kinds of skills that are so incredibly important, which was why we're so passionate about wanting to really build a movement around this. So, so basically what we did was we said, okay, so this, the ship is really hard to move. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really hard to get this kind of, you know, stuff into the school day. So, so what are we going to do? And um, our executive director, Joe Sweeney, who's amazing, um, looked around and started looking at where other big kind of seismic changes in education have, have occurred. Mm-hmm. Um, and specifically, he, he was looking at like STEM and, and social emotional learning, SEL. Yep. And what he discovered in these cases is that there always seemed to be kind of an organization that was in the background that most people probably hadn't heard of mm-hmm. that was really catalyzing and building the field yep. um, through a variety of things, putting accelerant on organizations that were doing work like you know, that was really in the center of gravity of, yeah. of, of what the organization was interested in. So like we'll accelerate decision education foundation and try to help move that along to look at um, uh, people, uh, you know, whether it's academics or business or other nonprofits, you know, or uh, in education who are kind of like hovering around the center of gravity and kind of trying to pull them in into the center Yep. So that they were, you know, get them cl- to come into the mission and see, you know, how they can move and, and, and become part of what you're doing um, to become really good connectors, um, to provide resources and support to those organizations uh, and, and really to sort of sit in the background and like figure out how do you kind of weave this fabric together that's going to create this new thing. Mm-hmm. And in the case of SEL, it was a, a, an organization called Castle mm. um, that was in the background that was really doing that. And if you think about it with SEL, like 30 years ago, right. no, nobody had even heard that. Like, right. what was that? Right. Nowadays, everybody knows what it is. We talk about it so much on the show. I tend to say, I get socio-emotional, baby, because like, yep. <laughs> uh, I'm a Whitney, Whitney Houston fan. But, uh, <laughs> but anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's everywhere. Like, it's... Right. Yeah. And it feels like it happened overnight, but it didn't, Mm -hmm. you know, it took 25 years or something for that to occur. And it was because there was an organization that was really, really trying to push that along. Yeah. And, and so we said, okay, so that's, 
all right, we've got this model now for how you create scale. Yeah. Um, and we decided that we were going to, that that was the way that we were going to execute our mission, mm -hmm. which is to get teach decision skills, you know, to every kid in K through 12. That's our goal. Right. Um, uh, with a, certainly with a focus, a focus in particular on kids who are underserved. Yep. Um, but that we knew that the mission didn't change. It was just the way that we were executing on the mission. Our strategy for, yeah. for executing on the mission changed. And we said, that's, that's how we're going to model ourselves. We changed our name to the Alliance for Decision Education, which I think describes what we're trying to do a lot better. And that's more the catalyze of feel, like try to get a movement going uh, yeah. and try to get sort of like, uh, we've talked to the folks at uh, South by Southwest, uh, the EDU guys, the guys who do the EDU conference over there. And they talk about, um, you know, creating a convergence zone of people who are, you know, are kind of loosely aligned, but at a conceptual level, like spirit, there's like spiritual alignment among like right. a broader range of folks. And um, I think you're onto something. We like to talk about how things are zeitgeisty, uh, you know, because it's fun to say zeitgeist. Yes, it but, is. Uh, that is a fun that that's an excellent word. I like convergence zone too, but I like zeitgeist as a fun word to say, but I'm going to take convergence zone. From yeah. Me. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, Ron, Ron and Greg down at South by Southwest DD, they, they do great work uh, down there, but it's sort of like the idea of like, you want to get people who think similarly enough that they'll benefit from bouncing off each other, but like they don't necessarily have to have, you know, uh, like monolithic alignment around one single, right. you know what I mean? It's more like yeah. there's a, and that's what creates a field too. Cause like right. you talk about that in the book as well, the importance of uh, divergent uh, perspectives and people who can be, you know, critical. Um, Cause that actually helps you make better decisions too. Cause you know, you're getting more inputs and you're, you're avoiding groupthink. But, right. Um, right. but, but yeah, like, so, so the name of this, this field is, uh, is there, a, what's the best way to talk about it? It's a uh, decision. So the field broadly is called decision education. Mm -hmm. um, and we can think about it as encompassing a wide range of uh, decision and critical thinking skills. So mm -hmm. all the way from uh, how do you deal with uh, decision fitness? So like, so the emotional component. So even like some mindful, pra mindful practices would go under this umbrella of mm -hmm. making sure that you're calm enough to make a decision. How do you think about habits and habit formation? Mm -hmm. Identify your habits. Like, how do you figure out what habits you want to develop and what habits you want to change? Mm -hmm. um, to uh, really thinking about how do you uh, how do you bring some form of decision analysis into your own life? Um, you know, building out decision trees, really understanding what the consequences of your decisions might be. Mm -hmm. um, uh, really thinking about how are you mapping out the future? How are you becoming like a good forecaster? Mm -hmm. uh, thinking about how do you do um, internal audits of your own beliefs? How do you broaden your own knowledge base? Because obviously at the base of any decision that you make is going to be the, the beliefs that you have that inform it, which right. then obviously brings you into the whole, whole world of biases right. and really understanding uh, what are the ways in which we're really processing the world through, through the lens of, of, the, of our own cognitive bias, you know, obviously confirmation bias is, is one that uh, you really want to think about, like bandwagon effect, mm -hmm. um, Dunning-Kruger, which is just, you know, it's kind of as Dunning-Kruger is a very interesting one where if you're a beginner, you say, I don't know anything. Right. And then you learn a little bit and you know, I know everything. Right. 
and then you become a real expert and you go back to, I don't know anything. <laughs> exactly. Um, so you like, you really want to understand like, where are you on that curve and like be really focused on what don't you know? Um, and then obviously teaching, uh, prob you know, just probabilities, right? Yeah. Like, how are you thinking probabilistically? How are you understanding that what 70% means or, um, you know, what, what, what the likelihood of any event occurring is and how do you marry that with what's to be gained or lost from a particular situation so that you can start thinking about expectation. Yeah. Um, and what the consequences of your decisions might be. I mean, it's, it's really, it's, it's a very, very broad, it's a very broad field. So we need lots and lots of people with lots and lots of different perspectives yep. to be coming in to, you know, to create this kind of movement Mm -hmm. um, and, and force to, to propel this idea about decision skills and critical thinking skills, you know, and decision education broadly mm -hmm. um, to propel that forward. And what's the best, uh, so our listeners, I think, may be part of uh, that uh, audience who, who are activating within uh, their, their own, like, educational context, like a lot of folks who are either in ed tech or they're educators or they're, they're just interested in lifelong learning. Uh, if they want to be activated against, uh, you know, decision education and some of the stuff that, that we've been talking about on today's show, uh, where should they go? What would you recommend they, they do? Well, I would love if they'd go um, to our website. Okay. Uh, and you can get there either through our old name, which is howidecide.org, or through our new name, if you search the Alliance for Decision Education. Okay. Um, you'll find there there's a petition that you can sign that just says that you'll be part of the movement. But there's contact information on there. And if you feel like um, this is, you know, that you feel like you can help or, or uh, you know, want to be connected to what we're doing, please, please get in touch with our, um, either our executive director, Joe Sweeney, or you'll see Adriana Massara on there who does our programs and partnerships. Yep. Um, and a lot of what we do is people who say, uh, you know, I, um, you know, I founded a charter school and I would love to bring this in or right. I'm on the board of a charter school. I'm on a board of this, this school or I have a relationship with this school district or whatever. Or if it's a business, you know, if mm -hmm. you're in business and this is something that's really important in your business and you recognize how important it would be for you to have employees that are coming in already skilled up. Yeah. Um, in this, you can be part, you know, we want you as part of that movement. If you're, yeah. uh, you know, part of the um, higher ed, and, and you realize how important this would be to push down into K through 12. We want you to be part of our movement. So if, if you reach out to us and have any ideas about how to help us, or if you're an organization that you feel is in that convergence zone, yeah. right. Um, uh, and you're looking to partner up and, and to have someone to help you make connections and, and to accelerate uh, the efforts that you're making, please get in touch with us. Awesome. So, uh, you know, and if you just want to be an advocate and tell people that we exist, I mean, look, that there's so much value in that. Yeah. And, uh, and also, uh, people should, uh, buy and listen or read or acquire your book as well. Right. Cause that's another, another way to kind of, a lot of the concepts that we're talking about. Um, I had a much deeper understanding because I listened to your book, uh, one and a half times, uh, the second time on, uh, on double speed. Uh, but, um, but like, that's another way to kind of understand, like, it's a good, if anything, it's almost, the book almost felt like there was enough, it was so well researched that it almost felt like a course. Uh, oh, which, well, that's nice. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, I'm glad you took that as a compliment, because I actually think you could, you could almost expand that into like a lot of the, the research that you reference 
um, could almost become a syllabus uh, of sorts. So like, I think for folks who are into lifelong learning and they want to, you know, get like a one-on-one exposure to uh, what it means to be uh, smart about decision-making, uh, I, I would personally recommend uh, Thinking in Bets because uh, I, I thought, uh, uh, plus it's just really well-written. Like you're you're, a, you're a wonderful storyteller and uh, I think it makes, it's a lot easier to understand really abstract concepts when you can tie them to things like uh, the, the, the Super Bowl and, uh, you know, the, the ins and outs of, uh, of navigating a poker room uh, during, during a tournament. Um, Dan, I, I think, uh, you know, Annie, thank you so much for the time you were able to, to spend, uh, spend with us today. Great stuff, Annie. I, I absolutely learned a lot here. Uh, I will be receiving your book tomorrow from Amazon. So I look Yay. forward to sharing that with uh, my nine-year-old as well. We talk a lot in this house about uh, probable and possible outcomes. We try to go for the probable, not the possible. Uh, and I think she'll really enjoy uh, hearing about it as well and your story. An amazing share here from you and appreciate the time. Again, you can find Thinking and Bets on Amazon or across uh, the internet, AnnieDuke.com. Also available if you want more information on Annie herself and all of the things she's working on, the Alliance for Decision Education. Lots still to come in this conversation, I'm sure, as we move forward. Hopefully, we can have you on again sometime in the future. With that said, we're going to step aside from this episode. As always, find us at Trending Ed on Twitter, same on Facebook, and TrendingInEducation.com. Till next time, thanks so much for listening to Trending in Education. 